0: Thank you.
1: brings you The Haunted Sea, with host, Scott Mardis. Welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea. Today our special guest is my friend and paleofiction author, Max Hawthorne, and we're going to be discussing the recent um, revelations about the aquatic propulsive abilities of the tail of the dinosaur, Spinosaurus egypticus Hello Max.
0: Greetings and felicitations.
1: Do you want to um, talk about your uh, books for a minute? Already? Uh, no,
0: we can get to that. That's not a
1: problem. Alright, well. Well, thank you. You know, I think everybody in the paleontology community were stunned when this news came out there have been so much speculations about Spinosaurus. We already knew it was amphibious, but I don't think anybody thought that it was as much aquatic as this new study seems to suggest by the fact that the tail is laterally flattened and becomes thinner as it goes toward the end. And they tested it to see how hydrodynamic it was. And apparently it could have propelled this animal through the water like a crocodile so it was it this makes it officially the first swimming dinosaur i mean primarily you know a heavily aquatic dinosaur i mean there had been speculation in the past that perhaps sauropods were primarily aquatic and that hydrosaurs might have been somewhat aquatic but that has Dwindled down over the years, but this is really the first scientifically acceptable swimming dinosaur. So, what are your thoughts on this?
0: Well, my first thoughts is that, you know, I would imagine that all the uh, Jurassic Park 3 fanboys uh, would finally uh, get over, you know, the reality check that the steroided out, anatomically incorrect, T-Rex killing behemoth that was uh, presented in Jurassic Park 3 was obviously uh, a complete work of fiction I mean that's that's the first thing that comes out of this I mean you're basically looking at an animal that is realistically sort of like a gharial a really huge gharial you know the long slender nose and the the teeth designed for as a etc., with slightly longer legs and the unusual sail on its back, and then uh, maybe perhaps it has the propensity to sort of stand up on its hind legs a little bit. But uh, you know, it's it's a, a huge adaptation. I mean, a lot of people were kind of already figuring out the tail must have been. You know, laterally designed like that to allow it to move back and forth, which of course puts eggs on the faces of some paleontologists who were theorizing that the animal was unable to submerge and it would have wobbled from side to side, I read, and all the stuff like that. In reality, as Ibrahim's uh, illustration shows, it was superbly adapted. I mean, it had, it was a perfect swimming machine designed entirely for its habitat, totally specialized, and and a master of
1: its craft, so. Well, you know, it inhabited an environment with a lot of really large, unusually large fish types that we are familiar with today, mm-hmm. is this giant coelacanth Malsonia, mm-hmm. which I would imagine from its size, probably lives something like a big grouper. I would imagine. And probably had similar dietary habitats. And it's what's really unusual. There was a plesiosaur that lived in the same environment. But it's very small. I mean, it's like human sized plesiosa leptoclitis. And most of these fish, like the coelacanth, and there's a giant lungfish, and a giant biker, if you know what a biker is. B I C H I R. Mm -hmm. It looks sort of like a a bow fin, but it's got these spikes going down its back. All of these fishes got bigger than the plesiosaur or the sea turtle that inhabited the same environment. So I would imagine that these rather dinky marine reptiles were being eaten probably not only by the spinosaurus, but also by some of these fish
0: well i I think that like well, let's talk about i mean yeah i I saw some of the charts. so there was a lot of life forms inhabiting the same lakes, river systems, marshes, et cetera as Spinosaurus. I mean you had some small sharks, turtles, lungfish, all sorts of stuff. I would imagine i mean like some of the the largest ones you're talking about, like uh I don't remember the name of the sawfish on the top of my head, but uh it got.
1: It's called Oncopristus.
0: Okay. But it got quite sizable. I think it was in a mid 20 foot range or something like that. As big as a really big sawfish of today. And Malsonia, even though they say online um, that it grew to four meters, it actually got bigger than that. And I'm going to show you something right now. So this right here, okay, is one of the Halves of the post parietal on the top of the skull from Walsonia. And these are little bones on the top of the fish's skull. This <clears> is not a small bone, okay, and this is one of the two. So measuring this out against a coelacanth's skull, this fish right here was over five meters long, well over 16 feet in length. And I would estimate a coelacanth that size would weigh. Several thousand pounds, on I guess. There's no way that Spinosaurus was eating the full-grown Mawsonia, in my opinion, and those those full-grown sawfish. I'm sure for every five-meter Mawsonia there was hundreds of smaller ones. But Spinosaurus's jaws were not designed to rip things apart. They were designed to snap, hold and absorb up and down motion from the thrashing of the fish. In fact, if you look at the diagram of its head, you'll see at the end of its snout, it's got this neat little alcove in the premaxilla, you know, the end of the jaw there. And the mandible curves up and sort of fills it in. So the, socket. the
1: fish trying to get away is going to exactly.
0: the fish. And that's a fish trap. That's actually designed to snap and hold on the slippery prey. The teeth go here and here on both sides of that alcove, which means that its primary target fish would have had a body diameter that would have gone laterally across the jaws like that. So, if you look at the skull, say it maxes at five and a half feet, it shows you that, that that space there is maybe yay big, something like that, a foot at most, which means that the larger fish that it was eating were in that size range having a body about a foot in diameter, which makes sense. Yeah. Because if it, it couldn't tear its head from side to side, well, is what the research shows. There's
1: and some, there's something to think about too. It's a theropod dinosaur. Now we know that T. Rex, like a shark, could change the shape of its jaws because they were hinged at the top and the bottom, like mm-hmm. shark jaws. Now were the jaws of Spinosaurus built that way too? I would imagine it could do the whole, you know,
0: Mosasaur thing probably and, you know, gulp down prey, but it was probably limited in terms of the biggest fish you could eat to something that was about the length of its head, a guess, you know, five, maybe six foot, not much bulkier obviously or anything like that. So you know, your gigantic Mosonia and your, your 25, 26 foot sawfish would probably have been off the menu, not to mention hunting a sawfish that weighs a couple thousand pounds would be dangerous. I mean you're really taking
1: a chance.
0: Well, yeah, to fish
1: that size. This on unlike modern sawfish, had hooked teeth with a barb. Bon- mm-hmm. If you've ever seen the teeth of it, which is different from the modern sawfish. So
0: if you think about it then, if you're a you know a macro predatory marine reptile or ciscovorus in this case actually, and you're you at, at you're tackling a sawfish that size with an eight-foot rostrum with these teeth with barbs on them. You could be quite badly damaged. You know, you could suffer wounds to your face. You, know, you could lose an eye. I mean, you know, they would never bother, in my opinion. Plus, for every giant fish, you're going to have hundreds of thousands of smaller versions of it. So it makes a lot more sense for it to be grabbing that small versions of the species you were talking about, hatchlings, subadults, you know, five-footers, things of that nature. It would, you know, small crocodiles. I mean, everything and anything. I know I read that uh, they found a pterosaur with uh, scars on it from being snapped at
1: by uh, a know? Are you familiar with the um, filter-feeding toothless crocodile called Stomatosuchus?
0: Is that the one with the really long, wide, flat head?
1: Yeah, and it's got a a, a gullet hanging off of it, kind of like a pelican they believe it was a filter feeder. Well, it lived in the same environments with Spinosaurus. Now, I'm wondering if, if the reason it specialized to be a filter feeder mm-hmm. is moved away from competing with Spinosaurus as being sort of a crocodile proxy.
0: Well, you had Sarcosuchus in the same ecological niche. I mean, it's uh, literally eating the same stuff and hanging out in the same areas as Spinosaurus. So, I would think that you'd have those two also would want to separate as well, diverge in terms of not competing for the same niche, let's say right there. But I think that Spinosaurus, one of the reasons why, I mean, you're talking, I think now the upper size, wait, I got it written down here somewhere. Uh, I'll tell you in a second. So, right now, the uh, Spinosaurus is supposed to have maxed out as a quadruped somewhere between 49 and 52 feet in length, and 6.4 to, I'm sorry, 7.1 to 8.3 tons. So it's a big, long, slender animal, but it's big. It's bigger than Sarcosuchus, which only got into like the low 30-foot range or something like that. So if you think about it, Spinosaurus probably outdid its competition or won its competition with Sarcosuchus, avoided being preyed on, let's say, by being bigger. You know, there's a larger version. I mean, if you think about crocodiles, tend to shy away from attacking, you know, other crocodiles, especially bigger ones. You know, they give way to them. There's like a size hierarchy. So, not that it would perceive spinosaurus necessarily as a crocodile, but at the same time, yeah, you, know, you you tend to like shy away from confrontations where, once again, you're going to end up with a problem. Life is not meant by having clash after clash after clash. You know, yep. everybody likes to have their cake and eat it, so to speak.
1: You think about idea that they could occasionally walk bipedally.
0: I think and I just did an, an extensive blog post on this I' working on for the last couple of days. I think that they were obviously quite adapted at walking on all fours. And I believe that the well let's talk about the sale before we get into the whole you know bipedalism thing. Yeah. Because I think they kind of go hand in hand. Um, I mean, well, what, what's your take on it? I mean, everybody's had their you know, well,
1: theories. I've, I've read the different theories about whether it was for thermoregulation or sexual recognition, mm-hmm. display, or, um, or even good dynamic purposes to keep from balancing the kind of like a sail on a sailboat you know, or a keel, so apparently, uh, you know, the fact that you had animals like Dimetrodon, which was also in a, a semi-aquatic predator, it's not really convergent with Spinosaurus, but the consensus seems to be that it was a, a display, for display purposes, for species recognition. But I would imagine it probably had, you know, it could have, it could have served all those purposes. Mm-hmm. You know, I could see it as it's swimming underwater. This would be somewhat analogous to the sail of a sailfish. I mean, I know it can't raise it up and down like a sailfish. Mm-hmm. But at least from looking at the sailfish, we know that it was hydrodynamic. If the animal was swim through the water, it would probably be hydrodynamic in the same way that the fan of a sailfish.
0: Well I have had sailfish, um you know fish for them, etc. And when they swim at speed, the sail is actually retracted. And they use it as and I, I know paleontologists explore this. When they try and corral schools of fish, they will actually pop the sail up this like a wall in front of Fleeing fish and turn them this way and that way, and they'll corral them and they'll take turns feeding, etc. They even flash colors to alarm the fish and signal each other, you know, who's going to go first, who's going to strike, etc. It's an organized thing. But this, this sale is, I mean, these neural spines are really thick and heavy. You know, they're, they're, they're not flimsy. They're not, you know, foldable or anything like that. You know, my take on it is that I think that their primary Primary purpose of the sale is something like, and it's going to sound silly, but I know Peeling Todd has theorized this already. I don't have the names of them, but you know that it was something like the a, a hump of a camel, in terms of that it stored fat for periods of, let's say, deprivation, etc. And if you think about it, where these animals lived, you know, it's quite possible that they had, like in Africa today, they had dry seasons, they had wet seasons, etc. But it's not just Spinosaurus that has this adaptation. minus which is another yeah a completely bipedal one, had a sail also. It just wasn't as large. You've even yep. got macro predatory theropods like uh, Acrocanthosaurus had the same adaptation, and herbivores like uh, oranosaurus, whatever his name was. Okay, so there's a lot of different animals that have had these type of sails. Spinos was bigger. I think that if you look at a camel. A camel stores everything that that the, the hump is water, and it's not, it's fat, you know, stored fat. But when it's time of when there's no food or no water, and that fat is broken down, the camel gets water from the fat. I mean, that's what fat, a large percentage of it is going to be water anyway, you know, 80% of the human body, et cetera. So it serves as a reservoir. So if there's a dry season, and, you know, let's say Sucumimus, which is much more mobile because it's a biped, is able to move along to another watering hole or another river that's not dried up etc much more easily it doesn't need as much storage but Spinosaurus is probably slower being a quadruped you know maybe it has to do what a crocodile does maybe it hunkers down maybe it in the mud you know some crocodiles get into a, an under an embankment and then they try and wait it out see excavation hmm? excavation yes so you've got like an animal in that situation where it may have to go weeks months even or more you know without food or water you know that sale may have made the difference between living and dying and I mean even if it was gonna move from one watering hole to another you know, working its way along et cetera you know dealing with predator other predators etc. at the same time like an elephant it's gotta travel long distances in a drought you know that sale once again Maybe a lifesaver, and one of the reasons why it was able to survive for so many millions of years.
1: Maybe you that that's the same reason Dementrodon had one. Huh. We just don't know. Yeah.
0: But I used to think, and I still theorize this a bit, that when Spinosaurus, I mean, I'm going to go on the assumption that Spinosaurus was probably warm blooded, like most dinosaurs. So if it was, if you think about it, when it comes to it staying warm, submerged, etc., it's not like a crocodile. Like crocodiles, they go in the water, and then they come out. They eventually they have to bask in the sun. It's, it's just a matter of a necessity in terms of regulating the temperature. So, if you have an animal like Spinosaurus, gigantism is only going to prevent it from losing body heat so, you know, for only so long in the water. But it's very large if you think about it. You know, so even in most river systems, it would probably not have a tough time getting that sail up out of the water. Yeah. So if the sail is out there in the sun, and if it's a dark color, or if the animal has control of its pigments and it can darken it, then it can absorb so much heat from the sun, heating the blood in that sail and then flowing it throughout the rest of its body. So yeah. if it does that. You know, the sail does, like you said, it serves a dual purpose. And that would be very useful for an animal that's, you know, a warm-blooded animal spending a lot of its time in the water. And this may not be covered with blubber like a seal or a walrus uh, or, or meat,
1: you know. <laughs> there appear to be a lot of saltwater type animals in mm-hmm. the same deposits in Egypt, like uh, goblin sharks and a sea turtle mm-hmm. and various sharks. So it would appear to me that this animal was living in... Brackish water, something like a mangrove swamp, rivers very close to where they enter the ocean, and in which,
0: which begs the question, of course, did it go into the ocean at times as well? Yeah, we don't know. Um, uh, that would be quite interesting—a a Spinosaurus cruising along, and then a, a large Pliosaur comes up and says, decides to say hello. It's like a scene from a Max Wolf novel.
1: Yeah, it's too old to, to be a contemporary with the big mosasaurs. Uh-huh. It looks like the mosasaurs would have been coming in about the same time it was going out. It seems to me like Spinosaurus went extinct around the same time as the big pliosaurs and the ichthyosaurs around 93 million years ago.
0: Which is interesting, then, because if you think, I mean, it, you must have had a tremendous crash of fish stocks, etc. mass extinctions that wiped out the ichthyosaurs, and the ichthyosaurs basically were the, the pliosaurs' primary forage base.
1: Yeah, well, what I've read regarding the extinction of ichthyosaurs, they're blaming it now the a major anoxic event mm-hmm. that happened that probably wiped out their the ichthyosaurs' prey, The uh, cephalopods and fish that they were feeding on, they may have had specialized diets, and that may have been what led to this. Makes sense. Now, the explanation for the extinction of Spinosaurus is that the riverine habitats dried up, and they might have been forced to compete with land theropods, Mm -hmm. and they just weren't up to Adaption. In other words, they were too specialized for feeding mangrove river systems, and just not couldn't compete with the more general airfares.
0: Well, I mean, they're really designed to eat fish. Yeah. You know, anything else is like a bonus. I mean, if you're if, if you take a garieol, you know, it's it's a fish eater. But if something small enough comes close enough to be grabbed. I mean, whatever's around there, a monkey, let's say, or something like that. It may grab it and choke it down or something, but that's not really what it's meant to do. That's kind of like a bonus, I guess you'd say, or something. Yeah. So it's the same thing that you have with your Plyosaurs. If, you, if their main thing is hunting down 10, 20, 30-foot ichthyosaurs for a living and the ichthyosaurs are gone, you know, it's just a matter of time. So, I mean, I would think, like, Spinosaurus – you know the Jurassic Park 3 critter notwithstanding would never be able to slug it out with a large theropod like let's say Karcharodontosaurus I yeah. mean, their heads were almost the same size and length but the African T-Rex as it's called its head was designed to you know, crush bone and rip huge pieces of flesh out and you know, battle saratopsian sauropods, whatever. I mean it was just an enormous T Rex sized shark tooth killer. Yeah. Uh, you garials do not fight alligators. Garioles do not fight saltwater crocodiles for a reason. You know? I mean when these one, you you know like when you've seen like this stuff, like when a plius like a chronosaurus goes after an elasmosaur. What part does it try and nail before it feeds. It doesn't go after the body, it doesn't go after the neck even, which you think, it tries to get the head. They have fossils that show this. Mosasaurus, the same thing. So, you know, when you're taking on something that will bite you back, you want to get the least damage possible during that altercation, let's say. So, if a Karcherodontosaurus is going to try and feed on a Spinosaurus, He's going to go for that vulnerable, long, thin snout, that head, you know, get in a crushing bite. And that's going to be the end of it. Get him by the nape, something like that. You know, end of story. You know, a, a spinosaurus just can't hold its own, let's say normally, you know, against a predator like that, not in the middle of the woods. Yeah. See? So, I mean, part of the thing like, uh, I mean, do you want me to get into, like, what I just, you know, prepped on this big blog post that's
1: coming out? Absolutely, yeah. By all means.
0: Well, I mean, these paleontologists like Ibrahim and them are amazing. They have, you know, really solved the mystery in terms of how this animal looked and moved and, and you know, its environment, etc. You know, me, I always have, like, a... a like a pet peeve about the thing in terms of, like, you know, thinking about things like how is this animal going to survive if it's confronted, let's say, by the African T Rex, as they like to call it, et cetera. And you know it happens because that animal is coming down to drink water all the time. Yep. And what's in the water? Spinosaurus.
1: So yeah.
0: confrontations are inevitable. You know? Yep. So I would start theorizing, okay, so, you know, Realistically, we got a quadruped here with a, a long, delicate face. How's it going to, you know, pull this off? So the first thing is you figure, okay, so there's a sphinosaurus in the shallows or something like that for whatever reason. And this thing comes stomping along down there. So the first thing it's going to do realistically is what? Jump into the water and swim away, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, you know, it can't be easily pursued, et cetera. and and that's its forte so it has the advantage I mean I, I saw a huge monitor lizard, you know years back in New Jersey that did not belong in New Jersey by a pond we would go to fish it was yeah. a out and somebody it must have been somebody's escape head or something it was like a seven-foot water monitor hanging out there just sleeping on the embankment like a Komodo dragon you had to see this thing it was that big and it hurt us it got all annoyed it got up it shuffled down to the water, belly hanging, just jumped in and spam away. And you could bet nine out of ten times the spinosaurus wasn't taken off guard, if it had a kerateridonosaurus bearing down on it, that would be its escape. You know? And if it couldn't do that though, if it was caught unawares, if it was nesting, you know, laying eggs, basking, whatever, then you find yourself into a more difficult situation. But again, the animals got a river or a lake or something at its back. So it has, you know, an out. Which yeah. goes back to the idea of if these areas dried up, how is it gonna survive, you know, in the woods, etc. If mean, it's walking along and it gets confronted by three of these things, it's over. Yeah. yeah. So my personal theory on this in terms of how this animal would defend itself if it had to, has to do with what you were asking about whether or not it could move bipedally. And if you look at it, the pelvis is reduced in size and such. So it's like, really, I don't really believe where the way it's center of gravity is, etc. that it could walk bipedally, but I think it could do what a bear could do or a ground sloth could do.
1: It might, it might have been able to use
0: its front hands. Exactly. So you think about the megatherium, which is an enormous ground sloth, okay? yep. quadruped, Move the same way, and as they showed with Spinosaurus, theropods could not turn their hands palms down. So, when Spinosaurus walked on all fours, it walked, and they have fossils that showed this from the Jurassic theropods that using the pressure here. So, the claws are kept safe, like a megatherium's, like a giant anteater's. You know, that's how they would have walked. Okay, now he's confronted by Mr. African T Rex. So, what does he do? he rears up on his hind legs, he uses that huge flexible powerful tail as a tripod stabilizer, pulls his head back probably to keep it out of there, you know, there's probably a lot of bluffing, hissing, you know, roaring, teeth snapping, etc., and maybe that does it. I mean this thing standing up is two stories high, you yeah. know. I've seen a cat bluff a Doberman pincher by standing up and inflating himself, and the Doberman was like, what the heck, where'd the cat go? You know, all of a sudden something was as big as him. You know, he was tricked. So that, you know, a character of dinosaur might see that and say, okay, hey, uh, I didn't realize you were like, you know, big. But if not, then this animal has these claws. Yeah. And both, both it and Sukhumimus have the same layout on their hands. Mm-hmm. And they have these long claws, and the first digit, shh, is very long and short.
1: How about uh, baryonyx?
0: I'm mm, not sure. I didn't, look, didn't do a lot of digging on that one, to be honest. But oh, so you figure Sigamimus my- is, is, is an obligate Piscivore, like Spinosaurus. It has that same delicate face, say that same long thing. And even though it's bipedal, if it's in a situation where it's confronted with a predator that's designed to take down large prey, which it's not, it's not going to want to risk getting, you know, grabbed like that. So it's the same type of thing. So I envision Spinosaurus doing what like a giant ante does when confronted with a Jaguar. Rears up like that. It has those sharp claws. You know, it's like a boxer. And the Carcherodontosaurus, when it comes in to make its strike, it's using its face, obviously. Okay? But Spino has these two arms. Now they're not gigantic arms, but they're long enough to be out there before the no, head comes you- and makes contact with it. So. Dinky arms of a Talex. Right. So, you know, those claws are gonna hit that Kerterodontosaurus before he makes contact with the rest of the spinosaurus. And you're talking powerful slashes. Boom, boom. You know, Pherozinosaurus has those giant talons, you know. Yeah. Even a with the thumb for whatever yep. reason. Okay? So you've got to imagine that, you know, these talons, especially that first one. Real, really long. It's not used for locomotion, for gripping the bottom, or anything like that. It's a weapon, you know. And that's like, bam, across the face, bam. And now this theropod's got to worry: is he going to lose an eye? You know, a half-blind or a blind carterodontosaurus is not going to do very well. Yeah, so, you know, he's going. It's just a matter of time for something takes him down. If, you know? so,
1: uh, if if a spinosaurus is sitting in the shallows, uh-huh. and in deep water swimming, it may have used those same talents to grab fish too. Yeah, I mean you could see
0: that, but it's really that head is just so well designed, like a fish spear. You know, yeah. I mean, it's not just it's not just the length. I mean, think about it. I mean, you know all that stuff when when I put out that theory about pleisiomax and the lateral lines of fish. Yeah. And how. You know, when a plesiosaur would come up behind a school of fish, it's got that small head. Okay. And that small head does not have a big pressure wave like the body of that plesiosaur does. That elastomosaur, let's say. That body's way back there. These aren't the specialists, special, most special, special effects, but okay. So let's say this is your plesiosaur. Okay. <laughs> I've got my own. There you go. So this is the head. Okay. It's very small. The body is very large, so when the head comes up behind a school of fish out of that size, the pressure wave being pushed out front by this head is not like that pushed by the body in the flippers. So the lateral line on the fish just thinks, "Oh, that's just Henry coming up behind me. I don't have to worry about him." And then, bam! You know, the plesiosaur sort of grabs him by the tail and drags him back and eats him, etc. So with Spinosaurus, he had the same sort of advantage. He had that long, narrow face. And even though the neck was big, you know, compared to the body, it's, it's actually not. So when you take that long face that's out there, I mean, just the head alone is over five feet long. And it's coming up, especially behind the school of fish, or if the water is muddy or it's dark or whatever the case may be. You know, I mean, a lot of these river systems are very muddy. You can't see hardly anything. All yep. right? But that fish is not going to be alarmed by the pressure wave coming out from that thin snout you know he'll just think it's another fish until it's too late and then on top of that, Spinosaurus has all those four amina, those pressure sensors lining his face tops, yep. nose, back, you know the whole enchilada so even in the dark he can sense you. the fish so you know he's so well adapted, that head is so good, I mean it even has that S curve where it can pull back and you know like a snake or something like that Right, yeah, so I mean, I, I think the claws, in all honesty, you know, I mean, maybe if he had a big fish and he was holding it like a bear and adjusting it and stuff like that, but I think mostly those claws were used more for gripping the bottom of bit, keeping the big town you know, up out of the way. Remember, they can't turn this way. Yeah. So when he's holding things like that, it's going to be more like this.
1: One uh, thing you have to consider about the limbs, too, uh-huh. is if this thing is swimming like a crocodile with that scaly tail, it's uh-huh. going to to pull those all four limbs in cause the body to be able to make it hydrodynamic to be driven by that tail
0: yeah and it's in the illustration that you showed from the paper Yeah. so I mean they did a phenomenal job and by the way this is my daughter's stitch mug in case anybody's wondering and yes I borrowed it <laughs> <laughs> just I know what people think I mean not there's anything wrong with a grown man drinking out of a stitch mug but you know this is what I got.
1: The whole time we've been talking, I've had the kitty cat Indianapolis Five Hundred going back and forth underneath this table. I have my computer.
0: I was wondering why you kept looking left and right every so often.
1: Watching him pass, make sure they don't jump on the computer.
0: Good stuff, man. Uh, unfortunately, the minister of fluff is not in my office right now, so I don't get to torture people with you know pictures of a giant furry cat. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, I really, I really think like when I was trying to figure this out, you know, I really felt that those, you know, uh, an erect sort of like bear being confronted by a tiger type of scenarios for Spinosaurus would make a lot of sense. You know, the animal was able to defend itself against predators as long as it had the water. Yeah. You know, and that it, you know, you can always retreat back. But if these, you know, theropods like source travel in groups. God forbid, you know, like a pack, like T. Rex is believed to have, you know, that's a big problem, especially if you no longer have water that you can retreat to. Say, so when that river system dries up, the animal has a huge, huge problem, you know, and it's got to travel, and if it's going to run into problems like that, you know, you kill off your brood stock. That's it, no more.
1: Let me see if I can bring up that picture from the paper on the screen to show okay. people how the tail was built. Yeah, you can see the different section of the tail as it gets thinner going toward the end. So it's very streamlined, like a crocodile tail.
0: Yeah, it's got a nice vertical...
1: Yeah. So anyway, that's that. I'll, I'll take your word for it. I saw nothing. <laughs> so when when can we expect the new book?
0: Uh, well, the... Uh... The release date is this summer. I believe it is going to be in July. They haven't said yet. I know they usually do like a, uh, like 30 days out. They do like a pre-release, that type of thing, you know, for the Kindle and the soft cover that type of or wherever they're going to do it. But, uh, I think i going reasonably be very pleased with it. I mean, the Cronus Rising series has been going on for six years now, and I think this is going to be the, Sixth book in the series. There's like maybe four novels and then the two novellas or whatever. But uh, you know, this ties everything together.
1: My review that I wrote for your first book was in 2013, I believe, or 14. So it's been a yeah, while. 20,
0: yeah, 2014. I remember, yeah. but because uh, it was like April of 2014 or something like that. But um yeah, the I mean, I, I you know can't do any spoilers on the air or anything like that. You know, I'm sure you don't want me out here reciting. You know, stuff from the book or anything. But, um, yeah, everything. It's like, when, when you, like, originally, it's kind of funny because Cronus Rising Kraken was supposed to be a single book. You know, I mean, literally just one book. And if you think about the story it would literally be almost 2,000 pages long. If you put it all together in one giant, like, that's like a big Stephen King book or something like that. You know. Yeah. And the reason that it got so big is that, you know, I had this, like, the first book was finished so many years before it came out and sitting around. And I was planning the second book for during that whole time period. And I would keep coming up with new stuff and adding to it, coming up with new scenes, new characters, new action, this, that. You know, it was like a Bible's worth of like notes and stuff. And then when you started writing it, it got to the point where I had the first book, I was already pushing 600 pages. And I'm realizing, I'm like, guys, I'm like not even forty percent, a third of the way through, you know, the, the, the breakdown, how so like I, structure, structure things.
1: In other words, you had a giant outline and by the time you put dialogue and out, it just girl and good.
0: Exactly. And I'm not one of these authors that, you know, like a lot of modern publishers, they do this whole less is more thing in my opinion, they want the minimum page count possible so they can have greater profit margins. I mean, that's the name of the game in publishing, unfortunately. And so it's like, they want everything, like it's almost like they want to give the reader the Cliff's Notes version of the story. And make, oh, the reader, he'll imagine all that. He'll he'll know what that person looks like. You know, He'll, he'll know, how, really? You know, I like, I like, when I create a character, I want people to be able to look at, like, 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 you know, George R. R. Martin, when he describes somebody in his books, like in Game of Thrones, you, know, you, you could see that person when you read that first paragraph or two about them. You know, you need to take the time. You need to give people these things. You know, why should they have to use their imagination to do the work? Our job as the author is to do that for them. You know, it's my job for you to read my story and to be swept away into the story so that you can see it in your head effortlessly it's just there you know So, but you know you can't do that if you take a six hundred page book and make it two hundred pages long and i'm not going to do that you know i want my people to get my readers to get the most bang for their buck you know so if my kindle costs eight dollars but it's six hundred pages long you know you're getting your money's worth and that's a good six hundred pages it's not Crap, like some of the stuff. So,
1: when this story is done, what are you going to do next?
0: Well, I'm I'm trying to decide where I'm going to go from here because this ties up all the loose ends for the kronos Rising series, and it leaves me in a position where I can let it sit, or I can start another book. And to be perfectly frank, I have another book planned, and I have a prequel planned, and I have some other stuff planned, but I'm not in a position where I'm leaving people hanging anymore, where they're going to be dogging me on social media, you know, like I get.
1: You "You left me hanging. You killed my favorite character, you son of a. You know, what's going to happen next? When is that book out? You know, all this other stuff.
0: Yeah, and it's like, you know, I don't have to deal with that anymore because now everything's tied up nice and neat. You know, they may want more, okay? But I haven't left them in a position where, if I decide I'm going to write a horror novel now that's totally unrelated, I could do that. You know, yeah. if I'm going to do, uh, you know, like a, a script, a screenplay, you know, whatever. You know, there's a lot more flexibility, let's say. But if I'm going to put it on hold, the series, I can always come back and pick up right off. That's yeah. the beauty of, you know, because yeah. I know, obviously, I know how the story ends, and I know where I'm at there. I have like the potential to do so much more. And you got, you have to leave uh you leave doors open for yourself.
1: You can always go backwards with it. There's so much to explore with the backstory. Mhm. Uh-huh.
0: So uh you'll see when you read it it's like kind of like there's a few unanswered questions that people might be like, Wait, hey, what was that thing that was that he had I you know, I never heard we never found out what that was. And there'll be a reason for that, you know. Or did this character, is, is he really dead? Is he, did he get killed? Was he eaten? Was it, you know, whatever it might be. You, know, you leave yourself a little bit of leeway so that, you know, you can, if you want to resume things, you can. Yeah. And, but it all has to be done in such a way that you have a suspension of disbelief. You know, you don't want people to read your stuff and say, oh, that's bullshit. That could never happen.
1: Yeah, like, you're, you're not putting gills on pliosaurs.
0: Yeah, you know, artistic liberties, are artistic liberties, etc. You know, I mean, we know the sea snakes absorb, like, what, 25 or 30 percent of their oxygen through their skin. Yeah. You know, and I explored that already with pliosaurs and gave them the ability to brumate on the ocean floor, you know, hibernate.
1: Well, we also know that turtles can turn to the- and into a fish kill, too, yeah.
0: but, but yeah, So there, but if, sea turtles actually breed a lot through their skin.
1: Yeah, so if I I'm that. going to make plesiosaurs breathing like fish, mm-hmm. I would go the cloaca it route. It's <laughs> all good, brother. But you know, I, I
0: just like I like to do things for people where. Like I was very pleased with like Cronus Rising where people would tell me they were afraid to go to the at the beach, afraid to go in the water and stuff. You know, that's like like when you, they saw Jaws. It's very flattering that you can create that sort of sense of realism that they think that, you know, it's crazy that this could happen, but you know what? It's not impossible. I think I'm not going in the water. You know. But, you know, using a like like my whole Diablo Caldera thing to give a plausible explanation for these animals surviving to the present, etc. Yeah, you, know, you want to create that sort of Realism like people think that it really could happen, you know, the octopus, you know, for example, having these giant kraken, you know, living down there, super deep down and feeding on whales, sperm whales. Yeah, you know, that's their prey. See, so it's like for millions of years, you know, a sperm whale goes down, look for giant squid. Sometimes he doesn't come back. Why? What happened down there? You know, it was a perfect opening to create the opportunity to explain that an octopus giganteus may just exist. You know, and then why would this be thing? These things be coming up to the surface? Well, so many whales have been killed. You've you also know.
1: got this Triassic Kraken evidence too.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I tied that in a
1: little bit. I'm sure you uh, drew on that too.
0: Well, listen, I know Mark personally. I've had beers with him. In fact, Mark McManaman and all. Actually, there's a funny story. I wonder if I'm going to get in trouble for this one. Um, I don't think so. I'm going to tell it. So I went to uh, uh, to Boston a few years back, and I met up with uh, Professor Mark McMenamin, the paleontologist who you know did the Triassic Kraken theory, et cetera, and all that. And uh, we were meeting with a connection, a, a TV producer, to talk about doing a documentary on his discovery. You know. I was like involved with it, et cetera, and so he and I, Mark and I, got there like forty-five minutes or more before the, um, you know, before the producer showed up, and so we were sitting around having brewskis and talking and whatnot, and you know, we'd spoken on the phone a few times and a lot of emails and stuff like that. But by the time, you know, the TV guy showed up, we were like, like you know, old college buddies, like hanging out, et cetera, talking bullshit and laughing, all this other stuff. So then the producer shows up and he's sitting there and we're like going back and forth to talk and talking all this other stuff and he's like, "Man, he goes, you guys are great." He goes, "Wow." He goes, "So he goes, so how do you how, how do you guys know each other?" And I went, "Ah, oh, it's a long story, Johnson." I used to date his sister and all. He's like, "What?" And he goes, "That's not true.
1: We just met."
0: <laughs> he was like.
1: Okay,
0: I can see this is going to be interesting. sat sad long enough to get buzzed. He's like, I used to date
1: his sister. And he's like, what? Yeah, I love messing with people like that. It was funny. You had to be there. Mm.
0: Yeah. But yeah, so, but the Kraken theory is actually, in my opinion, has potential. In fact, more and more discoveries are coming out, you know, to, to bolster it. They just showed up uh, the other day. They had some fish that showed similar injuries from a squid attack, and the squid and it were both fossilized at the same
1: time. The 200 million year old thing. Yeah, I saw yeah. that.
0: And the injuries that the fish has sustained from the squid's attack is very similar to the ligature marks and the bone crushings and stuff that these 50 foot Shonosauruses have. You know, in uh, what's it called in Berlin ichthyosaur. Yeah. Uh, where they found it would do those research. So, yep. you know, you, you, the more and more you put it together, the more stuff starts piecing in there, it becomes more feasible. And, I mean, there's been so many sightings, you know, anecdotal, etc., of whales being attacked by enormous sea serpents wrapped around them that were obviously squid, etc. Yeah. You know? I mean, is, is this thing really gone? I don't think it is, you know? Yep. So
1: wouldn't want to be down there running into that, let me tell you. Yeah. So, is there any final thoughts you want to add?
0: No, I, I I think the spinosaurus thing is great. I really think it's it's fantastic that it's finally been put to rest where enough fossil material has been found that there's no longer any doubt you now that this was a primarily aquatic
1: animal. That oh. one thing we forgot to get to discuss mm-hmm. is this. Uh, an encrypted animal, Mabulu Mabulu Mabulu, that is described as having planks or a sail on its back in Cameroon, which is different from the Mokele Mabimbi.
0: Mm-hmm. And they, I never, I never dug into that. I know you sent me something like a brief little thing on it. Yeah,
1: they tried to um, explain it as an aquatic stegosaurus, but knowing that we've got a dinosaur that lived in Egypt. Mm-hmm. That had a sail on its back. It sounds more like something along the lines of a spinal sword. It
0: does. Yeah. How recent were these sightings?
1: Um. Probably 70s, 80s, I would imagine. So. Well,
0: I mean, was it was in a large river system? Like, like a large body of water? I think so. I mean, because you need a huge. But whatever, something like that, to survive and also to not be seen very often.
1: Yeah, they may have downsized and possibly changed their dietary habits, too, in order to, to survive. I don't know, you know, but it is a possibility.
0: Well, it would certainly be cool. Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'll keep you posted on Cronus Rising Kraken 3's release date, obviously. Looking forward to what you think of the book. Thank mm-hmm. you.
1: Stretch Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Mardis.